evening and welcome to the Latin American and Iberian Art Song Wednesday. I'm in Barcelona. My name is Patricia Caicedo and I'm a soprano and musicologist and I will be your host in this journey through the world of song. Today we are blessed for having with us Dr. Walter Clark. He is the director of the Iberian and the Center for Iberian and Latin American Music of the University of California, Riverside. Welcome, Dr. Clark. Thank you very much for that generous introduction. It is both a pleasure and a privilege to be here today speaking with you. So I what I didn't say when this introduction is that you are a dear friend. And I am also, we are very close friends. Yes, so this is very important. Um, Dr. Clark, for the ones who don't know him, um, he is a musicologist, also a guitarist, and he directs that the Center for Iberian and Latin American Music at the University of California, where you have been working for how many years, Dr. Clark? Well, I started there in 2003, so... This is my 17th year. Hard to, hard to believe. Tempus fugit. Tempus fugit. But you have devoted all your professional life to Iberian and Latin American music. So how did you start with, with it? Well, when I was young, um, the Beatles were all the rage. And I remember going to the record store to buy their first album, Meet the Beatles. And I wanted to play, well, my heroes were George Harrison and Chuck Berry. I love Chuck Berry. And where were you born, by the way? In Minneapolis, Minnesota, in the north, in El Norte. And uh, where it's very cold in the winter. And that might help to explain my attraction to the music and culture of warmer <laughs> regions, I don't know. But anyway, so when I was about 11 years old, I fell in love with the Beatles and I wanted to play the guitar like George Harrison and also Chuck Berry. So I started taking guitar lessons. And I also got interested in country music, uh, Chet Atkins, that sort of thing. Then one day when I was 14 years old, I came to my lesson and my teacher was playing this. He didn't see me there, but I was standing in the doorway and he was playing this for somebody else. It sounded just like this. And I was like Paul on the road to Damascus. I had had a vision of ultimate truth of God and that was it. I was done. I mean, I still listen to Chuck Berry. I love Chuck Berry. He was a great genius. And uh, George Harrison, too. I still enjoy them. But that was it. I was a convert. I gave up Chet Atkins, Chuck Berry, George Harrison. Forget all that stuff. Now, I worshipped Carlos Montoya. So it <laughs> was so, love at first sight. Love at first heard. First Malaguena. That was what he was playing was a kind of crude adaptation of a Malaguena, not by a Spanish composer, but by the wonderful Cuban composer Ernesto Lacuona. Mm -hmm. Now, that was all he knew. So if I wanted to learn flamenco, I was in trouble because that was all he knew, was a sort of pseudo-flamenco piece. Wow. And you were in the middle of, of Minnesota. Minnesota. Which year are we talking about? This was, the, well, let's see, I was 14, so I guess this was 1966. 
Oh. So here is what happened. I was fortunate. I said to him, I want to learn to play like that. He said, well, that's all I know, but you're lucky because someone has just come back from Spain. His name is Michael Hauser, and he was studying flamenco in Spain. You should contact him and take lessons from him. So I did contact him. He had been studying in Madrid with the great master Luis Maravilla. And uh, so I started taking lessons with Michael Hauser. And the very first thing he taught me was Sevianas. Then we went on to Soleá, Bulerías, Alegrías, Cigarías, uh, Tientos, uh, and all kinds And how of, long did you study with him? I mean, you started at 14. I studied at 14 and I took lessons with Michael till I was uh, about 18. Wow. Um, but then the other cool thing was this. In Minneapolis, Minnesota, of all places, a Spanish woman had married a man from Minneapolis and moved to Minneapolis to live there with him. She had danced in Antonio's company. Her name was um, Maria Fernanda. And she had danced in Antonio's company, and so she started flamenco dance classes. And I learned to accompany dancing by accompanying her classes. Oh, my God. But that was wonderful because also learning all the, the movements and all these Absolutely. rhythm because it's very close related the the music with the dance with the yes. in Spain. All the, great, all the great flamenco guitarists like uh, Nino Ricardo and Ramon Montoya and Sabicas and Uh, Luis Maravilla and Paco de Lucia, all of them were also very great accompanists because in order to play Alegrías, you have to understand not only the baile, but also the cante. So my good fortune was that I had the opportunity not just to play Sevianas for myself, but to use it to accompany dancers who were learning the Sevianas. Uh, but at some point I thought, if I want to be a really good accompanist i should learn to dance of course to so feel I, i mean it's so important and this is the subject of embodiment we have to feel the embodied. rhythms in the body this and you are an expert on this whole issue of the embodiment of musical expression which singers of course live in that universe because your body is your musical instrument, instrument. So I started to take flamenco dance lessons. I have a picture in my office of me dancing the Sevianas when I was 17 years old. Wow. And um, that I did become a better accompanist because then I knew what the dancers were doing and I understood better the whole idea of a llamado or desplante and um, what I as, accompanist, as an accompanist should do when the dancer makes a particular move or a, a particular gesture tells me what to do. Um, you really, I mean, growing up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, obviously I was never going to become one of the greats, <laughs> but um, I learned a lot more that way than I would have uh, any other way. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. So it ignited the, the flame of, of love for Spanish music, for Spain, Spanish culture. So what was the next step uh, towards that, that path? 
Pat. Well, I was, I was sort of a gypsy. I went off to college and I didn't really have a goal in mind. I mean, I majored in music, but I developed a passionate interest in liberal arts topics. I took so many art history courses that I became an art history major. <laughs> I had an advisor. Um, and I took courses in, in German, Latin. I studied Latin in college because I wanted to. The way I went to college was I just opened up the schedule of classes. Ooh, that looks cool. Latin, oh, I always wanted to learn Latin. Ooh, Victorian literature, German romantic poetry. Okay, I'll take a class. Oh, Japanese art. Yeah, I think I'll do that. You are your nature, if this nature of a curious person yeah. who wants to learn everything yeah. too. It, ne it never occurred to me someday I might want to have a career, buy a house, get married, have children. Those thoughts never crossed my mind. So this was, you know, 1970, 71, 72, and I was still sort of a hippie, I guess. I cannot um, picture you as a hippie, Dr. Platt. Well, I had hair down to my shoulders. And, and a guitar in hand. Of course I had a guitar. I mean, and a just, Latin book in your in your hand. And then studying Latin, which I, I loved. I'd always been interested in ancient history. And in high school, I kept asking, are we ever going to have a course in ancient history or mythology uh, next year? You'll get that next year. And so when I got to college, I thought, I can't use the word here. But I, I basically thought, to heck with you people. I'm going to get the education I want. I'm sick and tired of people telling me which courses I should take. No, I'm going to tell you which courses I'll take. And if I never get a degree, never have a mortgage or anything, I don't care because I'm going to get the education I want. And I did. I, <clears throat> I still remember a lot of what I learned because I wanted to be there. However, and so okay. the guitar and Spain in this context, how was it? Where was it? So I got so involved in my courses in, you know, Latin and Japanese art and all that sort of thing that I was sort of neglecting the guitar. Oh, for it was a, a time of also self-discovery and yeah, testing exactly. different things. But what happened was in my Japanese art class, there was a very cute girl. Her name was Louise. And I noticed Louise, um, but I was shy. Eventually though, I asked her out and she said, I've been waiting eight weeks for you to ask me out. So we went to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and they played Manuel de Falla's uh, suite from his uh, El Sombrero de Tres Picos. And, but what I discovered was Louise loved the guitar. And what did she love most of all? She loved a piece by Isaac Albéniz called, usually called Leyenda. Mm -hmm. Well, as luck would have it, I could play Leyenda. <gasps> so that was the key that unlocked um, the door to Louise's charms by playing Leyenda. But what I discovered, you know, obviously the relationship with Louise didn't survive, but what did survive was my reawakened love of the guitar and Spanish music. So, I gave up art history, all of that stuff, and I went to the North Carolina School of the Performing Arts. A very this, good school, I mean. It's a very good school. This was in 1974 to study with Jesus Silva, who was a Mexican guitarist and composer. He had studied composition with Manuel Ponce, but he had studied guitar with Andre Segovia. Wow. Who came to the school that year in January of 1975 to give a master class. And I played Manuel Ponce's Valls 
for Andre Segovia in a masterclass. Oh my God, what an emotion. What an emotion, yes. Of course, we were all terrified. There was an auditorium full of people. And Segovia, such a myth. Yeah, this mythical figure. And then there were about 10 of us on stage and each one would go up and turn and play. I mean, it was very scary. So but perhaps some of our listeners don't know who Andres Segovia was. Could you condense in three phrases who was Andres Segovia? Okay, Segovia was to the classical guitar what Chuck Berry and George Harrison were to rock guitar. <laughs> He was the superstar. Now, the, Segovia presented himself as the person who sort of single-handedly revived the Spanish classical guitar. It was Now, a whole construction around this image. Yeah. He, he basically mythologized his own career, something I discovered that uh, Albanez did too. It was typical of romantic artists to do that, and that's not a problem. But Segovia was a very great artist. He went beyond being a, a great guitarist. He was a true artist. When he made music, you listened because he, whether you agreed with his interpretation or not, he approached every piece of music with such passion, such conviction. And I remember that we had spent the evening before the masterclass talking with him after supper for a couple of hours. Wow. And it was fascinating. Someone asked him and said, <clears throat> asked him what his favorite recording was and he said well i'm not satisfied with anything that i've done which i thought is that's the mark of a great artist you're never satisfied but he said the best thing i think i've done is the bach chacon and i would agree with that i think his uh, um, performance of that is amazing deeply moving and very persuasive even if other artists go about it in, in different ways but He said that he consulted different transcriptions, especially the Busoni piano transcription. He, cons he consulted a lot of different sources before doing his own transcription. So that was my first inkling that a, that a, a really good performer like you is also a sort of musicologist. You're not sort of, you really are. You have a doctorate in musicology, he didn't. But he went about his work in a musicological way. He consulted sources. He got information before he attempted to create something original. So you finished your career as a guitarist. Well, yeah, I mean, to make a long story short, um, after that, I eventually made my way to California to study with Pepe Romero. Mm -hmm. And I entered the master's program at the University of California, San Diego, to study And with Pepe him. Pepe Romero is, uh, I mean... Is one of the lineage of great Spanish guitarists for Absolutely. people who don't know. The whole family. They, okay, so uh, Pepe Romero is one of three sons, Angel, Pepe, and Celine. And um, they're members of the Romero Guitar Quartet, which was created by the father, Celedonio. So you had this family of truly great guitarists who already in 1960, this is the 60th anniversary of the Romero Quartet uh, in 2020. So they have so many recordings. You know what I know that because when I was a child, my father, who is a big um, classical music fan and collector of CDs, he had this section of the Los Romero, La Familia oh, Romero. Really? So that was part of my upbringing yeah. also when we heard guitar and concertos, always yeah. were the Romero's versions. Yeah. 
Well, you see, they formed this quartet in 1960 and they became very popular. They had moved from Spain to the United States already in 1957. They settled in Southern California. But by 1961, they were already playing um, the, like The Tonight Show and Jack Parr, various television shows. They were appearing on American television in 1967, they were on the Ed Sullivan show, which, you know, millions the, of people The role promoting the Spanish music and culture was very important in the United States. Very important. They were the first important guitar quartet. There was no repertoire for guitar quartet. They had to create a repertoire, and they did this in two ways. Well, three ways. One, they all played classical and flamenco. They were from Malaga, so they, they were very good flamenco guitarists, so they would play Malagueñas and Fandangos and so on. But and it's also, very nice that it had that flexibility that is not usually found. No. Because this, you found or the very gifted flamenco guitarists or the classical guitarists, but they are two families, like two braids. Well, that's an excellent point. Um, many great flamenco guitarists like Sabicas and Paco de Lucia did not read music. They don't they read music. Phenomenal hearing. They can, pick it, they can hear something and immediately pick it up. So they didn't read music, and most classical guitarists don't know an Alegrias from, from a Sevillana. So they just, you know, I mean, this is just not something they can do. So it's very unusual for classical guitarists also to be very accomplished flamenco guitarists mm -hmm. or in reverse. And um, Pepe once told me that one of the highest compliments he ever received was from the patriarch of the Abichuela family, which was a very, is a very great family of flamenco performers in Spain. And the, the father said to him, when you play classical music, it sounds like flamenco. Wow, that that, the, that's the compliment. One of the big compliments he ever received now. Uh, so I studied with uh, Pepe Romero and with Celine at the University of California, San Diego for two years. I got a master's degree. I went off to Germany, uh, West Germany at that time, 1986, on a Fulbright for two years to study early music with a lutenist there, uh, Jürgen Hübscher. And then I came back and did a, a, a doctorate in musicology uh, at the UCLA with one of the great Hispanists, uh, Robert Stevenson. Is it the, the, the Hispanist, I mean, is he's also a, a legend. Oh, he's a legend. He's a legend. I mean, for all of us, the people who study Iberian and Latin American yes. music, he's one of the forefathers, I mean. The well, he is one of the forefathers because he had this idea that you cannot look at music of Spain, Portugal, Brazil, Colombia, the Philippines in isolation. They're all part of a cultural heritage that goes back hundreds of years. He wrote books on music in Aztec and Inca territory. Um, he wrote a book on music of Mexico, music of Peru. He wrote um, standard books on the music of the Spanish Renaissance. Um, he was a phenomenal scholar and it was a great privilege to work with him. And I very much remember something he told me when it, when it came time for me to choose a, a dissertation topic. I'd finally found an area that combined my love of history and music. Okay, so once I found musicology, that was it. Okay, I, then my life started to take off because now I had something that brought together my various passions. 
I said to him, you know, I love the music of Isaac Albanian, and I would like to write a dissertation on Isaac Albanian. This was in Dr. Clark, let me interrupt you, because what, oh. you have to promise me that one day we will make hmm. a program just to talk about Dr. Stevenson. Oh, yes, of course, I would love to. In fact, I was very honored he and I were having lunch one day. And uh, I remember I said, somebody should write your biography. And he didn't like that idea. He didn't. He was a very humble person. He was humble, but I also think he didn't want people poking around in his past the way he did with others. But I visited him on his deathbed a week before he died back in 19, and <laughs> he was born in 1960, died in 2012. And he asked that I write his obituary. Oh, and I was deeply moved by that, which I did. It was published in the LA Times and then also the AMS newsletter and so on. I was because by that time I was a biographer. You know, I had written biographies yeah. of Isaac Albanese and also Enrique Granados, which you translated beautifully into Spanish. And so he, but he trusted me, and uh, it was my great privilege to write. A short biography of him, at least as an obituary. But I remember back in 1989, as I was thinking about dissertation topics, I said to him one day, I said, I would really like to write about Isaac Albanian, but I'm afraid if I do, I'll never get a job. Who would hire an Albanian specialist? You know, nobody will hire them. You have to write. One other professor had said, write on a mainstream topic, and then you can do what you love later. No, I you thought, know that no. I have heard that same song many You've heard times. That's Because I remember when I started with my interest in Latin American art song, all the established um, opera singers I knew, everybody said to me, Patty, you should first become a famous opera singer, and then after that you can sing those songs, those little and songs you, you like. And that's just wrong. You, you have to, as Joseph, the great comparative mythologist, uh, Joseph Campbell said, you have to follow your bliss. Exactly. Even if other people don't respect it. Exactly. Because you have to be true to yourself. And if you're not following your bliss, you're not being genuine, you're not being authentic, and you won't succeed. So, so I decided... The, the doctor Stevenson told you that also? He said, well, he said, well, maybe you won't get a job, but he said... It's wide open. Go for it. Do it. He said, when I started out in the late 40s as a musicologist, I had to write about, uh, and he wanted to, but he said that the only Spanish composers that the German musicologists who dominated the discipline at the time, even in the United States, he said, the only Spanish composers they respected were the Renaissance composers. Of course. So he said, my first work was on uh, Cristobal de Morales because they respected him and Victoria and the rest of them, they didn't respect anything after 1600. <laughs> so he wrote about something that he loved, but they also respected. Um, he encouraged me to pursue uh, Albany. Albany. And, uh, and that has made all the, I took the road less traveled by, and that has made all the difference because As I was finishing my dissertation, I approached Oxford University Press. I said, we need a biography in English on this, on this composer. He's amazing. And um, they agreed. And so they you published your first book, I mean, your dissertation, 
became well, into a book? Yes, it, it, as a dissertation should. It should form the foundation of a book. Now, I wrote my dissertation on a specific aspect of Alvenita's output as a composer. I wrote about his opera Pepita Jimenez mm -hmm. and his other stage works. Opera which had, Pepita Jimenez has yeah, a vocal exactly. work. Because people think of Albanese as a composer yeah. of piano music, usually transcribed for the guitar, that's how they hear it. Very few people knew that he wrote uh, tremendous uh, stage works. And um, when I read the various writings about Albanese's life, most of the biographers dismissed these as a waste of effort. But as I was in Barcelona, in the Biblioteca de Catalunya, Looking at the manuscripts, yes, which is where all the manuscripts are kept, all the letters, everything. I mean, it was incredible. As I was going through the manuscripts for Pepiti Jimenez and Merlin and uh, San Antonio de la Florida and um, uh, Enrico Clifford, as I was going through these, I thought, you know, there was a, a French writer, Gabriel Laplan, had said these were abortions. I thought, these aren't abortions. This is amazing stuff. And so by that time, of course, you spoke Spanish. Well, I was learning, <laughs> yes. Claro. But, but the main thing is that I wrote my dissertation about his stage works, uh, focusing mostly on Papiti Jimenez, which I think is his most important stage work, um, and the whole phenomenon of opera española, which was a kind of movement in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. But above and beyond that, you know, I approached the, the editor at Oxford and I said, okay, I've written about his stage works, but we really need a full-blown biography of this man. They agreed and they offered me a contract. Wow. And there I was. So even before I had finished graduate school, uh, Oxford was offering me a contract for a book. And so that's great. But let me, I, since many of our listeners and viewers are singers, classical singers, when they hear yeah. oh, opera, Pepita Jimenez, they will be, what? Albeniz wrote an opera? So let's talk about this opera and also about the many art songs he wrote. I have actually, Thank I you. have here the book with his complete songs. That's right. He also wrote a lot of songs. He had a, he lived yeah, in... It's there it is. Me. You see? Yeah. This That's a wonderful The Integral para Voz y Piano de las Canciones de Albeniz. Published by Trito. Published in by Trito. In Barcelona. And it has With songs in, 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 in Spanish, in Catalan, and in English. And uh, someday we'll talk more about uh, Granados. Um, oh, yes, because you, you will be a, a very, I mean, a presence. A very co constant presence for our viewers and listeners to know that Dr. Clara will come back many times because we have many subjects to talk about. Dr. Stevenson, Albeniz, Granados, Rodrigo, etc., etc., etc. Los Romero. Dr. Clark, being a professor, talks way too much. No, yeah. no, no, no. This is amazing because we, I think the pe people who are listening and doing this are all like us, curious people who want to learn. So this is perfect for us. It's perfect for performers because people know the name of Albany, but they may not be aware of the music that he wrote that you know, wasn't for piano or transcribed for guitar. He never wrote anything for the guitar. But when he was 
composing piano music, clearly he was thinking of the guitar. Indeed, and so, yeah. yeah. But he also loved the human voice. And um, he, he was active in London uh, for a few years in the early 1890s, and he made a friend there, a man named Francis Burdett Monicoutz, Monicoutz. who poems. was a writer, a wealthy writer, and he gave Albanius a very generous salary in exchange for setting his poems and his librettos to music. So he is the one who wrote the libretto for Pipiti Jimenez, for Merlin, for uh, Henry Clifford, and he also wrote the... Uh, I didn't know who was the libretto writer of the Pepita Jimenez too. Yes, he read, well, Pepita Jimenez is a very famous Spanish novel, uh, as your Spanish okay. listeners will know, by Juan Valera, published in 1874. And um, Coutts read an English translation of it and said, this is fantastic. This is a great novel, and uh, we should use it as a basis for an opera. Now, it's interesting that Albanese wrote to the author, Juan Valera, said, hey, we would like to make an opera out of your novel. And he said, don't. It would be like mixing um, custard with partridge. It would be horrible. It's not suitable for uh, operatic opera. transformation. But they went ahead and did it anyway. Oh, God, um, without permission. No, but he, but Juan Valera never sued them. He just said, "I don't." At that think time, it was different. Also, this conception of uh, it was different. Well, what singers should know is that they could go through these operas and find individual numbers. For instance, uh, Pepita sings a beautiful song in in uh, Act One. They should go through these operas and find individual numbers that they could use, and also the songs of Albany. Um, the the Pepita Jimenez the opera is published the score yes mm -hmm. also by Trito by Trito so that's good um, to know you can, I mean there are different versions of it it premiered in 1896 then he made a a revision he continually revised it uh, uh, for performance in Prague in 1897 and then a big revision in the early 1900s um, that was uh, published by uh, Breitkopf und Herhel in Leipzig. I actually went to their archive in Leipzig to look at uh, correspondence and, and different things. It's um, the story of Albanese is a very international story. I had to travel, to do my doctoral research, I had to travel all over uh, Europe. Following his, his steps. Yeah. I mean, but he started very young because he went, being a child all, uh, almost, he traveled he to Buenos Aires, is that right? Well, that's what he claimed later, he didn't. But what happened was he appeared in his first concert when he was about four years old. He was a, he was a prodigy. Um, his parents- Born in here in a little village, Camprodron, aquí near Camprodron, Barcelona. In Berlin, Catalonia, and then the family moved to Barcelona and then then they moved to Madrid. Um, but even in his early teens, he was traveling around Spain. He would get on a train and go to different places and give concerts. He was a real gypsy. He was a gypsy in that sense. You know, kind of, he had the mark of wanderlust on his foot, as we say in English. But anyway, um, so what happened was his father he claimed later that he snuck onto a ship and from La Coruña or Cadiz, depending on the version you read, and then he went to uh, Puerto Rico and to Cuba to give concerts. 
Um, but, but what I discovered was that his father, who was a customs official, was transferred to Cuba. Oh, so he, he developed these stories, this construction, very yeah. romantic. So I had to do research in maritime museums and so on to find, you know, information about the ships and the passenger manifests and so on. Albanith and his father went to Cuba, but Albanith gave concerts in Puerto Rico and in Cuba um, when he was... 15 years old. Wow. And but everyone realized that he needed more formal training. He had he had taken classes and lessons at the Real Conservatorio in Madrid. Um, but he didn't finish there because he was too busy giving concerts. <laughs> you know, it was amazing. He would I went and, and looked at the records of his studies at the at the uh, conservatory in Madrid. And he was always missing classes. He he didn't finish anything because he was busy giving concerts. He didn't he need was to study. He was already studying in the University of Life. It, yes, but at some point he realized he needed more systematic training. So he went to Leipzig to study at the um, at the Musikhochschule there, the, the Felix Mendelssohn Bartholdi, where I also went to do research. And it turns out that although he, he later claimed that he was there for a year or three years, no, he was there for- Six months or- Yeah, but, well, even less than that. He was there for a short time and then he went back to Madrid. His father lost his job and, and they didn't have the money to support him. But then- It reminded me a little bit about Granados in, in Paris. Well, yes. That's a very, that's a very good point. And how was it that Granados, at the age of um, 20, was able to go to Paris and study um, piano there? And how is it that Albeniz was able to go to Brussels to study at the Royal Conservatory in Brussels, where he actually did finish a degree? Oh. How, did, how were they able to do that? They had patrons. They themselves did not have the money. They came from middle-class families uh, that experienced financial hardships and, and they didn't have that kind of money to go to Paris and study. Are you kidding? How could they afford that? They needed patrons. In the case of Granados, uh, there was a wealthy owner of a, of a big uh, department store in Barcelona and Granados was giving his uh, children piano lessons and he gave Granados the money so he could go to uh, Paris okay. and study the piano with Marmontel. And Albeniz. And Albeniz got a grant from the king. Wow, that was high rank. At that time, um, yes, definitely higher rank. At that time, it was the king's, uh, that was Alfonso Dothe. And uh, he was able to get a grant from the king to go to Brussels to live there for three years. And um, he completed... So he finished his studies there. He stayed the three years studying? He studied this three years, finished his program. He graduated with distinction. So I don't know, hearing in that story, could, could, it could be that when he went to Leipzig, he had to go back because of the lack of money? Yes. Now that I, he had it, he took advantage of it. What are the other things I did in addition to all the research that I did in Leipzig and Prague and London and Paris and Brussels? Um, 
what I also found in Madrid was I was looking for records of his father's employment. I thought his father worked for the government as a tax collector. Well, as a customs official, not a tax collector. He was a customs official. And I thought there, there must be records of his employment somewhere. And so after six months of looking, I finally found the archive in Madrid where they keep all of these employment records. And I remember sitting at the table, the very nice woman brought me some, some volumes and I looked through them and there it was, a, a complete record of his, of his father's employment that showed where he was for how long. Um, and so I was able then to piece together Albanitha's own career and separate fact from fiction because what Albanitha had done when he lived in uh, London especially was he, he would tell every journalist a different version of his life story, that he was a professor at the Conservatory of Valencia. He was directing Sarsuela companies in Bilbao. Wow, I know that these were... He, he studied with Franz Liszt for three years, you know, and I looked that up too, and it turned out that he never, he, he did meet Franz Liszt, but he never, he didn't study with him. He played for him once, and that was it. So he, he... <laughs> These grandiloquent this ideas about yeah. himself or... Because he knew that no one would bother to check up on him and he wanted to impress these journalists. I would do the same thing. He, he needed to impress the public in order to survive. And so he but would help I, No, you, you wouldn't do the same thing. Alberis did it, but I don't, you don't need to do that. I mean, there are certain people and still today, I yeah. think I have known people who... Um, may bigger or invent a lie about their accomplishments. And I think probably deep back, uh, um, the reason of that probably is insecurity uh, or yes. you don't feel secure Absolutely. about himself or something that you feel that you need to create a story that is bigger yeah. than you because you don't believe in yourself. Probably it happened also. Well, because when people are, of like narcissistic or overconfident, usually this is covering a lack it, of confidence. Yes, we have a president who fits that description perfectly, <laughs> um, but only president for 23 For a few, a, few, a few days. Yes, but the thing with Albanese was, what I came to realize is that he was supremely confident of himself as a performer. I never read a single diary entry or letter or review that suggested he got nervous, that he made mistakes because he got nervous or something. No, that doesn't seem to have been a problem. Whereas we know that Granados would well, get so nervous, his friends had to push him, had to push him out on stage. Um, and then he would settle down because he was a phenomenal pianist, but he would get very nervous. I don't find any evidence that Albanese was, um, lacking in confidence in himself as a performer, but he may have felt defensive about his career. So he needed to aggrandize himself because he wanted to impress the public. So if a journalist came to interview him in London about his life, and you know, at that time he was um, in his early thirties. So if a journalist came to interview him, he wanted to publish an article about Albanese's career, of course he's going to say all kinds of grand things about himself because 
he has to sell himself to the to the public. It's a free market economy. Imagine Albany's today with the social networks. Albany's on Instagram oh. <laughs> and Twitter. I mean, no, I he would just he would go crazy. A, a very good on social networks. The problem is that there would be people like. Walter Aaron Clark, who would, you know, research his claims and say, no, <laughs> you're not the director. So you found, you uncovered all these things. But it's, it's very nice to find all of that because it gives you an idea of the the person behind the great artist. I mean, yeah. okay, it's psychological, personal, historical, or social factors that make the, the, the artist. I have, I'm currently writing... We're working on my fifth and final biography about uh, Joaquin Rodrigo. I hope this is not the final one, Dr. Clark. Well, we will see. I, I, I published a book on the Romeros uh, two years ago, which was a great privilege. They asked me to write a book about their family. Um, imagine, I, I, first, I took my first lesson with Pepe, actually, in January of 1976. Almost do the math. How many years ago is that? 45 years ago? Yes. I took my first lesson with him. And then all those decades later, he asked me to write a book about their family. It was a great honor and it's privilege. It's like a circle that is... A circle, absolutely. And so I've written books about Alvenes, Granados, Moreno Toroba, which is about to appear in Spanish translation. I co-authored that with my good friend, uh, Bill Krauss. And that book is about to appear from ICMU um, in the Spanish translation by Luis Gago. And um, then I wrote the Romero book and the fifth and final, we will see, <laughs> is uh, I'm working with my uh, friend, uh, the very distinguished musicologist, uh, Javier Suarez Pajares on a biography of uh, Rodrigo that will be published by Norton in New York. Um, So the point is, I've done all of these various composers and families. And Dr. Claire, you, you also receive a condecoration from the, from the king well, or from the Tell us about that. This is pure gossip. Oh, it's pure gossip, but it's actually true. I was driving to work um, in 2016, and I got a call from the general consul, the Spanish consul in Los Angeles. And he said, hello, is this Walter Clark? And I said... Yes, he said, well, I'm uh, the general consul of Spain in Los Angeles. And he said, I want to tell you that the king of Spain, uh, Felipe VI, uh, Felipe VI, uh, has awarded you um, the honor of Comendador de la Orden de Isabel la Católica. And my first response was, yeah, right. So who are you really? That's what I said. This got to be selling. One of these calls that are somebody's hearing to yeah. their reaction. I don't need vitamins. Please go. <laughs> no, he said, no, no, this is, this is actually it. And Comendador is a step above Caballero. It entitles me to be addressed as Ilustrísimo Señor. Uh, so Ilustrísimo Señor, that's, uh, uh, I mean... Uh, recognition of your contribution to the preservation of the history of Spanish music. Cultural heritage. Well, here's the thing. So I said to him, well, thank you very much. Can I turn this honor down? I don't really deserve this. And he said, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> 
All and right. you, you do re, in, pro, probably in a few things the king and I will be uh, in agree. Uh, you know I don't believe in kings. No, I know. But, but in this, I fully agree. I mean, the, I, I, to, I mean, you have done a great favor to Spanish culture and, and heritage, preserving well, all this history and music and. I always feel though. Spain has done me the favor. Since I was 14 years old, it has provided me with beauty and inspiration and a reason to go on living, <laughs> you know. So the thing was that he came out to my university, uh, the chancellor, the dean, all sorts of my family, all sorts of people were there for a ceremony at which he presented me uh, with the cross of the condecoración. And, uh, and Pepe Romero, was there to play the guitar. Oh, no, que emoción. That's what he played. He played Albanese's Leyenda. No, so that you Leyenda, that Conquest Luis. Yeah, that's right. So exactly, and I mean exactly, 50 years after I first heard Ernesto Lecuona's Malaguina played on the guitar that inspired me to pursue my career, exactly 60 years later, Pepe was playing that piece by Albanese, not Lacuona, at a ceremony during which I received the knight, the cross of a knight commander of the order of uh, Isabel. I mean, for a, a life dedicated to, to well, researching. That was the high point of my um, life. I mean, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. I, but, I mean, this is a beautiful, I mean, I, I think it is nice for the, our viewers and listeners to, to, hear about your story, life story, and your love for Spanish music and culture, etc., etc., because many of our listeners are people from the United States who yeah. was, well, yeah. was born there and who are interested in, in this culture and music, and many of them are students who are starting in their journey, discovering this this repertoire or teachers at universities who are instilling in their in their students this love. So this is beautiful to see and hear your story. Well, it's interesting um, you should mention that because when I was hired at the University of California, Riverside, one of the things they wanted me to do was to help create a doctoral program in musicology and an emphasis in Ibero-American music. And I think that I've done those things. I now have eight people working on dissertations with me. Most of them are guitarists. And they oh. came here because I think they they decided that, hey, if he can do it, I can do it. And they're right. Yes, it's, it's an inspiration. Um, yes. And also creating this Center for Latin, Iberian and Latin American Music is very important because this is a, a place for people yeah. to do research, oh. study, yeah. um, exchange. And resources, ideas. Yes, and we also promote uh, performance. You have performed for us on two occasions. You've given recitals. And, and you have and been a teacher of the, at the Barcelona Festival of Song and, and I, a big supporter of the Barcelona Festival of Song for many years. So you are part of the faculty and supporters and family of the Barcelona Festival of Song. And so, I look forward for your book on... Um, Yes. And I was on the tribunal, on the, I, I participated in your um, dissertation defense at the Complutense. That's how so, we met. 
that's how we met. And so we have known one another for many years. And I like to think of us as missionaries. We're, we're promoting a legacy of great music um, because it will enrich people's lives the way that it has enriched our lives. This is true. And also, I mean, I don't know, I know it's not the case of the University of California Riverside because of this emphasis you have, but most of the universities in the world, the music universities or conservatoires, they still today have curriculum, curricula that are very Eurocentric, focusing on Central European music still, and not acknowledging this very important part of the world's heritage that is the Spanish Absolutely. and Latin American music. And so we have to contribute to, to generate change and to at least make people think about, okay, this is the music that we are learning is not the only music, it's not the only valuable music. There is another music and the curricula should be rethink. Should, yes, should reflect that. And that's absolutely, That's absolutely right. And unless people like you and like me write books, generate podcasts, um, and perform and make editions of music. Exactly. It isn't going to happen. So um, that's what we're doing. And I have seen over 30 years now, I have seen tremendous change. I have seen you know that in me too, I have, when I was studying with this <laughs> mission, and love, decision to follow this path and etc. I always said, when I'm, I'm old, cuando sea viejita, I will see this music as part of the curriculum. I will see it. And so that's, but I, but I, I, I also was aware of the fact that there are no resources, no books, no nothing. So the lack of knowledge feeds this That yes. the, the curriculum continuing to be with only with the canon quotations. Yes, so I started doing also my humble contributions with the books, etc., etc. And now I'm seeing, and at this historical moment now, today, 2020, yeah. uh, for example, in social networks, I'm mm. seeing an explosion of groups of or people who are advocating, young people who are advocating for studying this music or recognizing this music. So I think our work has not fallen into... No, not at all. ...has fallen in the right uh, soil. No, it, it's absolutely right. Uh, the, the seeds that you have planted that I'm uh, working on planting are... Are, very, are, are producing a, a wonderful harvest, and because in the next two, two generations, I mean, two, 20 yeah. years, I, I'm seeing in 20 years this will be an explosion. I'm excited yeah. already about it. Well, and you should be, and you should be proud of the fact that you have contributed so much uh, with to make that happen. For instance, uh, Befos, the best Barcelona Festival of Song, every year um, for the past what. How, 15 17 years, years in, in 2021. 2021 will be the 17th year of Befos. Um, this, is this is a miracle. It is. And, and it's because you, like Stevenson and, and, and others, and like myself, you view this heritage as a, as a global phenomenon, 
not something confined to Spain or Portugal or Brazil or Colombia. Well, Colombia, I mean, I, one thing I, for me, it was very important to change my, to make a click wow. in my view. Um, when I was living in Colombia, my first 28 years, I had this view that was kind of confined to this space and mm. I mean all when you live in a country you you think that the, your country is the center of the world no it's the most important it happens yeah. to many many people well, in definitely. many countries so that's that's and and also you you make this distinction between no I'm Colombian I'm not Venezuelan or not Peruvian or not I'm <laughs> Colombian we are different so well, you mark the distinction but when you are um, you have acquired a view from landscape view from outside you yeah. see suddenly this point of view makes you allows you to see oh different things we are the same one space we have different uh, few differentiations here and there but we are part of the same family the same lineage with the same and in my personal experience this my own identity had been expanded in, in concentric ways because i was a a adopting my latin american identity and then my ibero-american identity and then my Mediterranean identity that also embraces the Sephardic, the Arabic, the so and my U.S. identity. I mean, that was part of my American identity. So it's kind of expanding, adding, 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 adding more. Well, ultimately, we are all citizens of the cosmos, I suppose, and that's how I, I like to think of myself as a citizen of the world. I'm a member of a species, Homo sapiens, and. Um, the differences that seem to separate us pale in comparison to the things that, that unite us, that uh, are the commonalities that uh, bring us together as, as a human race. I it's in, very interesting what you say. I want your listeners to know that you are multilingual. You speak, uh, obviously your English is perfectly fluent. Your native language is Spanish. You're also fluent in Catalan. You uh, can uh, speak in uh, what, Italian and Portuguese and uh, so you're multilingual, and I remember that you were studying Arabic. You have the same sort of intellectual curiosity. I remember you sending me my name written how it would appear in Arabic, which was an amazing thing. So you have this insatiable curiosity and a special gift for language, which is, I think, why you're a singer. You also play the guitar very nicely, but you're a singer because... No, that's not true, Dr. Clark. I think this is because you are a friend of mine. You said I play the guitar well. I just do... Look, I can't chew gum and walk at the same time. The fact that you can <laughs> sing and play the guitar is miraculous to me. But the point is that in the way I see your brain is that the the music, musical and linguistic parts of your brain are so well developed that the only thing you could do would be to become a specialist in art song because there you combine literature with, with music. Uh, I'm not a singer and you are a guitarist, but uh, you know that is interesting for singers who are, or singers who were born in the United States, or singers <clears throat> who are hearing this, to to feel that uh, probably the Spanish or the Catalan or the Portuguese are foreign languages for them, or they don't, they never have sung anything in those languages, but since we are we are part of the human race. 
as you, you, you just mentioned, is just putting a little bit of effort to expand your own identity and include yes. these other things. And as musicians and as singers, we easily can incorporate these uh, these different traditions. And every time we incorporate one new language or new musical tradition, we are expanding our own universe, not only musical, but intellectual, uh, our way of ex experiencing the world. So I, it's a, and this is an invitation for, for singers. We already are exposed to that at the conservatory or university when we learn to sing in Italian, in French, and in German. But this, also, this is a, one part of the music, one small part of the music, because sometimes when people, are, especially at, at the university or the schools, they said, let's study the history of music. And the history of music we are taught is the history of Europe, Euro, European right. music. No, that's yeah. actually. Yeah, absolutely, but there's with a special emphasis on on Germany and Italy. Exactly, and, that is the Western Italy. Western tradition music, but music Eastern is, Europe, Scandinavia, Britain, and Algeria are side dishes. There, you know, um, and all I mean, and, and the rest of African music, uh, Asian music. I mean, their music. We should study the histories of music. Yeah. They and, all have. and start without being an afraid to approach different repertoires. So Dr. Clark, I have to come, I will confess to the audience of this first program with you that our intention today was to talk about Joaquin Rodrigo. And his, and his uh, and song. His songs and, and his vocal production, I mean. But yes. we will let this topic for your second invitation oh. to this well, podcast because I mean you will be a constant presence in this program <laughs> we will talk about Granados about uh, Rodrigo about Albenis about many other things so for today I think we ignited the curiosity yes I hope so and um, there is so much more to say and to learn See, it to talk, we could be here talking for ages because we are passionate about this. The word education comes from the Latin educere, meaning to lead you out of where you currently are to another place, to a level of deeper and higher understanding. And the more we know about something, the more we'll enjoy it, the more um, satisfaction we derive from it. That's 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 the reason for education that's the reason for learning anything about anything is because i'm a hedonist i'm an epicurean in my philosophical orientation i want to enjoy the music i'm listening to albanians for instance i enjoy much more now even after 54 years i enjoy albanians music even more now because i know more about it en español, mi, mi, a mí me decía, mi papá decía, uno no ama lo que no conoce. You don't love what you don't know. Yes, absolutely. So that's what we are doing here. Getting that's what we're doing here. And often, in order to know something, you have to get outside of it. For instance, I had a, a colleague once, her name was Kuznetsov, but her specialty was Brazil. And I said, why did you get into studying Brazil when you have Russian ancestry? She said... Because by immersing myself in another culture, I understand myself better. 
Yes. And this is what immersing myself in Ibero-American music has helped me to understand myself better as a Minnesotan. And your life experiences living in the United States, in Spain, traveling widely, learning many different languages, has helped to refine your understanding of your, your origins. And, and Colombia is distinctive and unique. Each of the Latin American countries is. But it's possible that a person doesn't really understand that until they get outside of it and can view it. Uh, uh, en, en español se dice, hay este dicho de mirar los toros desde la barrera. ¿Cómo se dice en inglés? Well, I, I'm not sure. There was a, a great Scottish poet, Robert Burns, who said, Lord, give us the ability to see ourselves as other people see us. Um, and um, that's a rough <laughs> paraphrase, but the, the point is basically, if we want to see ourselves as others see us, we have to get outside of where we are, and that is educera, that is education, getting out of our current frame of reference and level of understanding uh, to a higher um, plane of uh, comprehension, and, and that makes life more enjoyable, and that's what it's all about. We're not here for that long, so we might as well enjoy ourselves while we are. Qué bonito. So this is a, a great invitation and encouragement for people to close this encounter that are, yeah. have inspired me very much, Dr. Clark. Muchas gracias, my dear friend. No, I admire no, friend. So I really love you and admire what you do. So yeah. I, I'm grateful for all what you have done and taught us. Um, uh, muchas gracias for being here in the podcast. And I only want to remind people that this podcast is possible thanks to the support of the Center for Iberian and Latin American yes. Music of the University of California, Riverside, for the support of the Barcelona Festival of Song, a summer program for classical singers devoted to the study of Latin American and Iberian art song, and the support of Mundo Arts, a publisher that publishes the music, the Latin American and Iberian art song. Edited by you. These are definitive editions. I own all of them. They're wonderful. Muchas gracias, Dr. Clark. Y entonces, hasta la próxima. Hasta la próxima vez. Y gracias por todo. Gracias a ti. Adiós. Adiós. Esa vida que es muerte